hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You kind of just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're gonna make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams, and I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new, real-life stories of hope and triumph, told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... Chris Lynch. My sobriety date is October 6, 2012, and I'm the Broward County, South Florida Business Development Rep for American Addiction Centers. So um, I grew up as a single child to a middle-class family in uh, the Pennsylvania area, uh, Philadelphia. Um, no real horror story or you know bad childhood, nothing like that. Um, I did always feel that internally I you know didn't fit in or there was definitely um, self-esteem issues and things of that nature at, at a young age um, you know I played sports I was very active and you know I definitely had different crowds of friends different um, you know never one group or anything in particular my addiction started around age 14 uh, I was drinking uh, using pills on the weekends and things of that nature, um, but really took off around age 17 with opiates. Uh, big into Oxycontin in the, in the Philadelphia area. Always kept a job, always um, kind of flew under the radar though. I was very good at masking my addiction. My family wasn't, you know, all aware of it quite that much. Um, internally, I justified my addiction that, you know, I wasn't as bad as x y and z and i didn't do the things that this person did or what have you so that was a lot of fuel to my fire i was always um you know working i was in college at temple university passing at that point still and um you know a lot of justification and a lot of denial going on as my addiction progressed um into heroin i started to lose that balance that i thought i had um looking back now i, I realize i didn't have that but at the time, I did believe that I was getting by and, and, you know, doing things right. I actively was an IV heroin user for about seven years. Ruined relationships, ruined, you know, um, job opportunities. I ended up failing out of college um, with three and a half years in. I had some run, run-ins with the law, things, you know, typical typical story of, um, you know, an active active addiction. Um, it was miserable. It was, it was absolutely miserable towards the end. You know, um, there's definitely stages to my addiction. You know, it was fun in the beginning and then it was like fun with some problems. Um, towards the end it was, it was nothing but problems, you know, um, going to bed fearful that I would be sick when I woke up, um, waking up sick. And then, you know, um, my entire day and my entire livelihood was wrapped around how to get my next one how to come up with the money, how to, did, did I have enough to get to work to get me through the day so I could go get more and um, just the constant, the constant need for more. And I was at a point in my addiction towards the end that, you know, it was never enough to get me high anymore. It was enough to, to stabilize me and, you know, make me feel okay and not withdrawing and not sick, but um, definitely not to the point where I was even enjoying a high at all anymore. So I went to treatment a couple of times. Um, I was on a methadone maintenance program for a year and a half. Um, 
while I was on that, I was actively drinking and doing other drugs, though. Um, I was on a Suboxone maintenance program for about nine months. And then, you know, obviously my family had gotten involved and, and you know, pulled a, an intervention on me. Um, I agreed to go to detox. I went to detox up in Pennsylvania. And when I had gotten out of detox, my bags were packed and there was a taxi cab to take me to the airport. And I had no real say in it, and I had a lot of resentment towards my family for that. And I had gotten on a plane and came down to, um, to treatment in Florida. I did about 30 days, and I knew the whole time that I wasn't going to stay sober. I wasn't there for me. I wasn't there because I wanted to be there. It was, you know, I was very um, angry and resentful at, the, at that period of my life. So I did what, you know, any good addict would do. And I got into a halfway house that I knew that I could, you know, bend the rules at and then I could use that. And um, I continued to use Florida for quite some time, um, about a year and a half, losing places to live, getting kicked out of halfway house from halfway house, um, going to detox here and there just to, you know, kind of control my habit, never with the intention to really stop. I ended up in a um, transitional living facility on Sunrise Boulevard here and um, the facility that I had went to recovery first actually had done an alumni follow-up call so I was living in this transitional living facility which was more or less a, um, a spot for active addiction active users that have been kicked out of halfways to continue to live at more so a crack house I was living there and recovery first had called me and done a, a one-year follow-up for my first day in treatment I had told them you know yeah I'm great I'm great everything's great and um, it wasn't and they you know were like hey if you ever need anything we're here for you like come join alumni this that and the third and a couple days later I, I, I finally you know broke down and I was like you know what I, I can't live like this anymore um, I had you know no car no no money no I was a you know, getting threatened to lose my job because I knew that I was coming in high all the time. I wasn't the best client, um, and I had made mistakes in treatment. I used in treatment, and I think the turning point for me was um, there was people at Recovery First that had cared about me more than I cared about myself at the time. Um, I used in treatment. I was sent to a higher level of care, and that next morning, there was three people in my room by 7 a.m., and they were like, you're going to be the kid that dies. There's no doubt in my mind that if you don't change something, you will be the way that you use, you will be the kid that dies. And um, it made me like kind of buckle down and take things a little bit more seriously and, and kind of want to do this for me because there was other people that actually took time out of their day and, and you know, talked to me on a real level and, you know, leveled with me and said that, you know, it's do or die at this point. And that was, you know, my last time in treatment. So in the beginning, I was, I was very much, um, my emotions, my feelings um, were all over the place. I didn't know if I wanted to be sober still. I didn't know that I liked meetings. I didn't know that, um, I didn't trust anyone. I, I, again, growing up an only child, I, I always say that, you know, I was always on my own. Not that I really was, but I felt that I was always on my own. So I kind of felt like I was down in Florida. Um, I'm finally giving this an honest attempt, but I, I felt like I didn't have anyone. Um, and after going to meetings and, and you know, working with the sponsor, that dynamic and that perspective had shifted. And I realized that I wasn't alone and I wasn't, you know, the only person doing the things that I was doing. And that, you know, there was other people very much like me everywhere that I turned in recovery.
I mean, everything in my life has, has obviously um, changed in a positive perspective. Uh, my family relationships are back. Um, I just had my son with my fiance, um, which is something four years ago I never would have thought was possible. Um, I was too selfish to, you know, care about a family or creating a family. And honestly, working in this field is, is really what keeps me going because it keeps, it keeps it real. You know, meetings are great and sponsorships is, is great and I definitely need that to continue my sobriety as well. But working on the front lines and, you know, being able to relate to that person on the other end of the phone that, you know, is complaining about their withdrawal symptoms or their fears of treatment and being able to walk them through what it's going to look like once they get through that door is what keeps me going. I mean, there's no time like the present, you know, um, and, and as cliche as it is, is, is to never give up because again, I had, I had tried different ways to control my habit with methadone maintenance and, you know, suboxone maintenance and, you know, I'll just drink and I won't do opiates and all these, all these things that we tell ourselves are going to make us better. Um, but they never work out. And the only thing that has ever worked for me was, you know, sticking and staying in treatment and, and giving an honest effort because we can, we can go to meetings for family and we can go to meetings to appease the husband, wife, girlfriend, whoever, but unless you're doing it for yourself, um, you're not really going to get the full benefits of recovery. I would say it's, it's easier for me to relate, um, because I have been there and it's easier for the client that I'm speaking to, um, to relate to me. It's, it's easier to build that trust that, you know, someone knows what they're going through and understands and isn't judging them. Because I always felt when I was using that, you know, anyone I spoke to about my addiction was judging me. And being that I've been in this situation, I feel as though clients don't feel that from me because I, I talk to them on a real level and I understand what they're going through and, and I'll give them pieces of personal experience to get them to commit and to want to help themselves.